0: On Palm Sunday, 2017, two terrorists attacked two different churches in Egypt, killing 40 people. Just a couple of weeks later, again in Egypt, a bus full of Christians was attacked by another terrorist, leaving more than 20 dead, including young children. Just over a week ago, a gunman attacked another church in Egypt. Leaving more than nine people dead. So I want you to take just a minute. I want you to think about how you would respond if that started happening here. What if churches in Indiana, Christians in Indiana, started becoming the target of terrorist attacks, religious based attacks? How would you respond? Would you still show up at church on Sunday? I'd be terrified. I would too. Would you still identify publicly as a Christian? Would you let people know what you believed if you knew that it could cost you everything? What would you pray for? If the church in Indiana was under persecution, what would your prayers to God sound like? Would you pray for protection? For safety? For the destruction of your enemies? For forgiveness, because you're not going to church anymore, and you you pray that God would forgive you for your fear? What would your prayers sound like if you knew that showing up at church could be your last day here on earth? At the end of last year, we began this teaching series that I've called On Mission. We're going through the book of Acts. It's what I said was Luke, volume 2. Luke, a physician and a historian in the first century goes and he studies the beginnings of the early church and he tells us how this little movement that began in this sort of backwater town in the Roman Empire sort of turned into this movement that took over the entire Roman Empire in the course of just a few decades. Luke tells us that these these followers of Jesus who had walked with him during his time on earth, who had listened to his teachings, who had seen him be crucified, and then then ate breakfast with him on the beach after he'd been resurrected, how they took his commandment to go into all nations and make disciples of all people, how they took this seriously. That's what the story of the book of Acts is all about. We left off last year before our break for Christmas with Peter and John. They had been walking to the temple in Jerusalem. There was a man laying by the temple who had been lame since his mother's birth. And they looked at him and they healed him on the spot in the name of Jesus. And the people who were around took notice of this because that guy had been lame. And people who are lame since birth usually don't get up and start walking and leaping and praising God. They said something happened here. And that opened the door for Peter and John to start teaching about Jesus. His death, his resurrection, and his lordship. And the same people who had handed Jesus over to be crucified caught wind of what was going on. All of these people gathered. They see Peter and John, these unlearned and ignorant men, as the King James Version calls them. Causing quite a stir as they talk about the resurrection and the lordship of Jesus. And and they don't like this because that challenges their power and that challenges their authority and that challenges the status quo. So they grab Peter and John and they arrest him and they throw him in jail overnight and they try to figure out what they're going to do with these rabble rousers. We'll pick up in Acts chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, I'll put the text up here on the screen. Acts chapter 4. We'll begin in verse 21. It says After further threats, the temple authorities let Peter and John go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God. For what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Now keep in mind, these same temple authorities are the same ones that took Jesus not months ago. And handed him over to Pontius Pilate, the governor of the Roman province of Judea, to have him crucified. These are powerful and dangerous people. And the only reason they're not doing worse to Peter and John right now is because they know that the people would rebel and revolt. But make no mistake, if they had their way, these temple authorities would have done to Peter and John what they had done to Jesus. So instead of punishing them there on the spot, they threatened them. They say, listen, we're going to let you go this time. But if we ever catch you speaking in the name of Jesus again, you better watch out. We're not going to put up with that kind of thing around here. So Luke tells us what they did next. It says... On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Just a side note, as I was studying this, um, one of the commentators made a note on this phrase, their own people. The phrase in Greek here, he said, is usually a phrase that refers to somebody's family. And I thought that was interesting, that the phrase that's usually reserved for somebody's family is here reserved for the church in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. It demonstrates how important the community of faith had become to these new Christians. And I think it's sort of difficult for those of us living in comfortable 21st century America to understand just how important the church family would have been to them. Because to become a Christian in the first century meant you might lose everything. You might give up status. You might lose, you know, family. You might even lose your life. And so to to give your life to following Jesus at that time meant that you were being brought into a new family. These people, in the face of opposition, in the face of threat, they went to the, where they knew they were cared about, where they knew they were loved, where they knew they would be supported. They went back to their own and they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said. They said, here's what happened. We were preaching in the name of Jesus. Here are the threats they made against us. They told us that we should no longer preach in this man's name. Luke tells us how, his, uh, how their companions responded. The next verse, it says, when they heard this, They encouraged Peter and John to lay low for a while and not cause any more trouble. Those of you who are following along in your own Bibles are shaking your heads because you know that's not what it actually says. Here's what Luke says they actually said. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. In the face of threats, in the face of opposition, they gathered together and they prayed. They didn't cower in fear. They brought their situation before God. But what did they pray for? What does a prayer in the face of persecution look like in the first century church? I'm glad you asked. Here's what they prayed for. Sovereign Lord, they said, this mission you gave us is just too hard. Don't you know how dangerous it is for us to tell people about Jesus? Surely you understand that it's just too much of a risk for us to take. You get it, God, right? You know that we're in danger here. You, you know that we're we're not we're not at, at safety. So you understand, God, it's just too dangerous. We know that, that you you get it. You you get that we're gonna that we're gonna back off for a little while. That we're gonna lay low to to, to protect our heads. No, that's not what they prayed for. Here's what they actually said, Sovereign Lord, they said. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servants, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Now this part that I've highlighted in yellow here may sound familiar to you. If you've ever read through the book of Psalms, you'll know that this comes from Psalm 2, the second psalm. They're quoting a portion of the psalms in their prayers. I told you a couple of weeks ago that the psalms were intended to teach God's people how to pray. It It was their liturgy. It was their hymnal, so to speak, and their prayer guide. It taught them how they were to pray. And so they take one of the psalms and they start praying the psalm as they're facing persecution and what they... What they mentioned here sort of sounds similar to what they're going through. So before we go on with the rest of their prayer, I just want to read through Psalm 2 together so we can get a little bit of context so we know what they're referring to. So if you have your Bibles, you can go to Psalm 2. Otherwise, I'll put it up here on the screen. Here's how it goes. This will sound familiar. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. I've highlighted the same part here that they quoted in the prayer in Acts chapter 2. In this psalm, the earthly rulers are rebelling against God and against his anointed, his messiah in Hebrew, his messiah, which translates into Christos or Christ in Greek. This is a messianic psalm. The people of Israel would read the psalm and it would shape their understanding for what the Messiah was going to do when he finally came. It's what they believed the Messiah's ministry was going to look like. So we're going to keep reading and see what they anticipated with the Messiah. The psalm goes on. The one enthroned in heaven laughs when the people, when the rulers rebel. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion. My holy mountain, my king is the reference to the Messiah, to the Christ, to the son. This is what uh, the God installs, the king, the Messiah. And in the next verses, we're going to see the mission that the Messiah was given. I will, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. This is the Messiah speaking. He said to me, God said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your Father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. <sighs> This is what they're expecting the Messiah to do when the Messiah comes. They're expecting this king is going to come and he's going to rule with an iron fist. And all of the nations of the world that rebel are going to be put down. And this strong military Messiah is going to lead with a rod of iron. and Anybody who, who rebels against him will be put in their place and dashed to pieces. This is what they were expecting the Messiah to do. The psalm goes on. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the Son, another reference to the Messiah, or he will be angry and your way will lead to destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. So, as we've seen, Psalm 2 is a psalm about how the Messiah is going to destroy the enemies who oppose God. And this is the psalm that the early church quotes in their prayer when they're facing opposition from the leaders of their day. So we're going to go back to Acts chapter 4, and we're going to read through this prayer again. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? <coughs> The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed one. They go on with this prayer. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So this group of Jesus followers in Jerusalem in the first century are applying this psalm to their first century situation. They see the psalm that talks about the the heathen raging and the nations conspiring together. And they look at what happened to Jesus and they look at what's been going on to them. They say, okay, what was being talked about in Psalm 2 is happening now in our time period, in our day. And so they're applying Psalm 2 to their current situation. And they're saying that, that the nations that are conspiring are Herod and, and Pontius Pilate and these rulers of the temple. And they're conspiring against your anointed one, Lord. But what does the Messiah do to those who conspire against the anointed one in Psalm 2? He destroys them, breaks them like, like pottery, right? So we're going to continue this, this, this prayer. Now, Lord, consider their threats, they say, and break them with a rod of iron and dash them like pieces of pottery. Oh, your Bibles don't say that? Here's what they really prayed. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. We would have expected, following along the lines of Psalm 2, that they would have prayed for the destruction of their enemies. But they had followed Jesus long enough, I believe, that they had come to finally understand that the role of the Messiah was not exactly what they were expecting. That Jesus was indeed coming, coming to conquer the earth, but that he wasn't coming to conquer with the sword and with the rod. That He was coming to conquer by transforming hearts, by healing, by serving, and by loving. So instead of praying for the destruction of their enemies, they prayed for greater boldness to speak. The word. In the face of opposition, they didn't pray for safety, they didn't pray for protection, and they didn't pray for the destruction of their enemies. They prayed for more boldness. When's the last time you've prayed for more boldness to speak the word? Where does boldness rank in your daily prayer list? This is what they prayed for. Prayer goes on. Stretch out your hand, Lord, they prayed. Stretch out your hand. Here we go. We're finally going to get to the destruction of the enemies. Stretch out your hand, Lord, and smite them. Stretch out your hand, Lord, and break them apart. That's what we would expect following along Psalm 2. Here's what they pray: Stretch out your hand, Lord, to heal. What? What? No. We read Psalm 2. We don't want you to heal. We want you to destroy. What, what are these Christians doing? That, that, that this must be a bad translation. These early Christians, what are they doing praying for healing in the face of opposition? Praying that God would be at work. Stretch out your hand to heal. And perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They didn't pray for God's destruction. They didn't pray for their own safety. They prayed that they would have the courage and the boldness to speak. And that God would be at work transforming hearts and lives in their community. Because they understood the message and the ministry and the mission of Jesus was to transform hearts. Was to heal individuals and communities. And they prayed that even in the face of opposition, that would continue. In the face of opposition, they prayed to continue the mission. In the face of opposition, they prayed to continue the mission. After the attacks in Egypt last year, they did an interview with one of the leaders in the Egyptian church. And and they asked him, how is the church responding? How did the church respond to these vicious attacks from terrorists in your land? And here's part of what he said. He said, after the Palm Sunday attacks, the churches were cleaned up quickly. Both the church in Alexandria and Tanta were filled with praying Christians throughout the week after the attack. Immediately following these bombings, they cleaned it up and they met back in the church to pray again. He says, it reflects the willingness of the church not to cower in fear to these terror attacks. We need prayer so that the hearts of Christians in Egypt would not melt in fear, but remain courageous for the name of Jesus. They show up at church after a terrorist attack. I want to stay home when I get a sniffly nose. As I was studying this passage this week, I I had this thought. I wonder if comfort and complacency isn't a greater threat to mission than persecution. I wonder if we've got it so easy that we've missed the point. That being a Christian is just one of the things that we do. Just one of the aspects of who we are. Whereas in places like the first century or as in places like modern day Egypt, being a Christian requires everything. It requires all of who we are and everything that we have. And you know what? In places like Egypt, in places like Iran, in places like China where the gospel is facing persecution, the church is spreading like wildfire. I wonder if What we consider blessings, our comforts, our ease of life, are really obstacles to our own mission. I wonder if it has lulled us into complacency and we don't feel any urgency for this mission because everything is going pretty good for us right now. So I've got some questions that I'd like us to ponder. Here's the first one. Do I feel any urgency for the mission? As you go about your days, you go about your week, do you feel any urgency to let people know that Jesus was raised from the dead and that he's the rightful king of the world? That he demands allegiance and promises life more than abundant? Do we feel urgency to tell anybody Or do we just, you know, sort of get up and go about our day and go to church and listen to a sermon and then have a nice lunch and do it all again the next week? Do we feel any urgency to what we're doing? Question number two. When's the last time I prayed for more boldness? When's the last time I prayed that God would give me courage to speak on his behalf? Number three. When's the last time I prayed for a non-Christian friend Family member, neighbor, co worker, etc. How important is it to me that people who don't yet know this good news hear it? When's the last time I prayed that somebody who's far from God would be drawn near by his grace and his love to experience what we all gather here to share and experience? I didn't put this one down, but if God answered every one of your prayers that you prayed last year, would it affect more than just you and your family? Would your neighborhood look different? Would the city look different? Would this church look different if God answered every one of your prayers? Are, 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 are prayers mostly just about us in our health, in our loved ones, in our own concerns? How often in our prayers are we addressing the mission to which we have been called as Christians? Imagine for a moment if we were as concerned about mission as the early church. Imagine if we were as devoted to the mission that we've been called as those first century Christians who who called the church their family and who gave everything for its advancement. What would it look like if we did that here in this little community? In what ways would our lives be different? In what ways would your daily life be different if, if we were this devoted to the mission as the early church? Imagine if we were as dedicated as our brothers and sisters in Egypt, who every time they go to church, every time they they gather together with other believers, know that it could be their last. And yet they do it anyway. Imagine if we were that committed here in America, here in Indiana, here in Bloomington, here at Stony Brook. Imagine if our most pressing prayer requests Was for more boldness for ourselves. And more of God's power to transform our community. What if we prayed for that stuff more than we prayed for ourselves? What would change? What would change in our hearts? What would change in our schedules? What would change in our pocketbooks? What would change in our church budget? What would change? If that was our most pressing prayer. And concern. The story of Acts is a story of how a small, ragtag group of people in a backwater town in the Roman Empire went on to change the world. We're gathered here today in Bloomington because these people were committed to the mission. It happened once before, and I believe it can happen again, but it's only going to happen if we have the same kind of tenacity and commitment and dedication to the mission. For them, mission wasn't just one of the things they were called to do. It was their very identity, their very essence, their very reason for being. And they gave everything. We're going to see that next week. We're going to see they literally gave everything for the cause. What if we believed that much? What if we were that committed? Just imagine Imagine how different our neighborhoods might look, our workplaces might look if we were more concerned about advancing the mission of Jesus than we were anything else. I'm gonna pray for us. I'm gonna invite Mandy up. She's gonna come sing while we partake in communion. So after I pray, if you wanna stand up and gather in a circle around the room, we're gonna share in communion together. Uh, and Mandy will lead us in some singing. <clears throat> Lord, I pray that you would shake us from our complacency. With whatever it takes, God. I pray that you would push us out of our comfort zone. In whatever way necessary. Necessary. I pray that you would bring this mission to the forefront of our minds, including mine, starting with me, God. That you would bring this mission to the forefront of my mind. I pray that you would give me boldness to speak your word, to share the good news of the resurrection and lordship of Jesus. I pray that you would give all of us boldness. That you would ignite our hearts with a passion for your mission. That you would help us understand the urgency of what you've called us to do. That seeing your love and your justice and your way of life transforming hearts and lives in our community. That that would be the, the cry of our hearts. Father, I pray that you would shake us out of whatever version of self-centered Christianity we may have grown up with, been taught, become comfortable with, and that you would refocus our hearts and our minds on reaching out with your power and your love. Give us boldness, God, and stretch forth your hand to heal that signs and wonders may be performed in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Father, as we gather together to share in communion, help us to remember the price that you paid as we take the bread, which is the body of Christ, as we take the cup, which is the blood of Christ given for us for forgiveness of sins, that we would really grasp the depth of what it costs to you so that we can have this freedom and this purpose and this community and this love. Father, remind us that what we're we're here to do, you purchased with the blood of your Son. Father, help us Let that inspire us. Let that spur us on to love and good works. May this bread and this cup nourish us. May it challenge us. May it inspire us. May it draw us together in love. And send us out to the world ready to speak. Ready to serve. Ready to love. I pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.